media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. One of the um, failed experiments in church life, in many churches' life, in the uh, probably 80s, 90s, going into the year 2000, was this... uh, thought process that, okay, let's, let's just be really kind of like the world in a little bit. Let's, uh, maybe even play songs like the world. Let's kind of do this, that, and the other. And a lot of things that was part of the church culture, so to speak. Let's just kind of modify that a little bit and let's try to kind of reflect the world. And I say it was a failed experiment because it failed miserably. It wasn't that all of a sudden the world looked at us and said, man, you're a lot like us. And so we just so identify with you. And what we found out through that experiment, and I'm not saying, and when I say we, I'm just talking about the American church for the most part, is that uh, the world laughed at us. Because number one, they said, you don't even do the world good. <laughs> In other words, you, you don't do what you, you look fake in doing it. And the one respect that we had for you is that you were different. And now you've lost the respect in that because you've tried to become like the rest of the world. When we look in the scripture, we do see that Jesus very much calls us into a counterculture. And yet, so oftentimes, guys, I think that we get wrong uh, what that means. I think you hear me say it a lot that does that mean more morality, more commandments to obey, more this? No, I'm going to give you the punchline right from the beginning. And then we're going to see it in the scripture as we come back later on. We're not talking about more mores. We're not talking about more manners. We're not talking about being kinder and gentler and all those things because we just learned a better way of doing things. What we're looking for is that we have broken hearts. We have hearts of stone. And the miracle of Christ is that he would die for us so that he could give us hearts of flesh. We don't need a morality change. We need a heart change. It's that deep. It's that core. And so it's not something that you can just kind of adjust on the surface. And yet what we're going to see in the scripture this morning is that we see one more time that the disciples are just being the humans that they are. And this real nature comes out with them, even though now we are nearly three years into the ministry of Christ. And you would think that even those thick heads would start to get it. Now, if today was a story about Peter, you're going, that's just Peter. But this is James and John. These are ones that, for the most part, we usually say, man, these are pretty good guys, the sons of thunder. They, they get it right more than they get it wrong. Peter, he's an easy target. <laughs> Open your mouth, pretty much, Peter, that was wrong. <laughs> and so what does it show us? It shows us our need for this Christ. Not more mores, not more morals, not more manners, not more kindness and all these kind of things that we think that we could do on the service because those are things folks that you can do in your strength would you agree that you can be more kind in your own strength and yet what we're dealing with here is not just a a, a lesson in kindness what we're looking for is that i needed a heart change i needed a heart transplant and god had to take out this heart of sin he had to go to my real dilemma my real real dilemma and he had to give me the remedy that only christ jesus could give me that's where we mess it up so much in church is that we just treat it truly as a religion. We treat it as some surface kind of, let's just start acting differently. 
We are to act differently, but it's going to come from the core if it's God's intention because all of a sudden our heart was changed. Now, that's the punchline. And we're going to see in this event in Christ's life, this call to counterintuitive, the, 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 the title of the sermon is, is, is from what Jesus said, not so with you. Can you imagine the number of things that he would look at in your life and my life and our hearts and our minds and, and said, this is not to be with you. So many things in the world that, you know, of just our natural man. When I say the world, I'm just trying to say, oh, you know, all those lost people out there. I'm talking about human nature. Anybody ever find themselves to be kind of selfish? You know why? Because you are human. <laughs> okay, and this is our nature. And when we see James and John come out and say, you know, hey, Jesus, one wants to sit here and one wants to sit there. We're going, man, I can see Peter saying that, but James, John, you let me down here, man. I thought you were part of the good guys. Now we find out that they are part of the human guys and that they face the same human dilemma that the rest of us face. In a way, that's encouragement. That at the foot of the cross, it is totally level ground. Totally level ground. Nobody is an inch in front of you. Those that were raised in a Christian home, let's say they were... God forbid that they grow up in a pastor's home, but uh, you know, not that curse upon them. But but you know, those people are not ahead in the line to the cross from the people that got raised in the the most hellious of all situations. Understand this: we are all in the human dilemma, and it is called sinfulness, and this is our nature, and our need is not kind of a slight adjustment. A little bit more straight instead of a little bit more crooked. No, I needed a heart change. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, very important term there, we'll look at it in a second, delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. If you've been with us in, in our travels through the Gospel of Mark, you will probably recall that this is the third time that Jesus has now pronounced what's going to happen. Uh, it's a little bit different because he actually says where it's going to happen now. He actually calls out Jerusalem, and they are going up to Jerusalem. The reason why they always refer to it up to Jerusalem, it's actually kind of like Denver. It's an elevated city. You kind of, from a lot of the other Middle Eastern places, you went up to Jerusalem. And so they're headed there, and they're now just weeks away, maybe months at the most, of those final days of Christ. And so the reality is really setting in. And so now this is the third time. The first time was in Mark 8.31. The second time was in Mark 9.31. And this is 10.32. That he's very pronounced, this is what's going to happen to me. And not only does he tell more about the place that it's going to happen, Jerusalem, but he actually kind of fills in a little bit more. Uh, description of Spit on him, mock him, flog him, scourge him. Even here, as Jesus describes what will happen, where it will happen, 
even the, the intimate details of it, they seem clueless. Verse 32 again, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And they were who followed were afraid. We have a lot of different emotions going on here, a lot of different thoughts of Jesus, was. why was he walking ahead of them? Uh, this is what I picture. I, I'm just guessing here, guys. There's nothing in the text that, that just says this is exact, that I can say, hey, I can prove this. I think Jesus is an amazingly determined, but he's amazingly committed to lead the way to Jerusalem. But I think he's amazingly lonely. I think he's just overwhelmingly lonely that he's leading this charge and the light hasn't come on in the disciples' minds yet. And so they're back there. They're amazed. Okay, this isn't going to happen to you. You know, especially, I mean, think James and John. They've seen the glory of Jesus. They were the transfiguration. They got a peek at some, at some things that nobody else got to peek at. And instead of stirring up, oh, we would do whatever, you know, yes, this is the, the will of God. This is where we need to go. It stirs up another thing in their heart and lives that we'll see in just a second. Instead of being humbled by the glory of God, they actually are going, okay, what are we going to get out of this? Because we're on the team. Where we finished off last week, we didn't get to talk a lot about that last thing. But Peter, of course, Peter, <laughs> is the one, well, okay, since that rich young ruler didn't leave all, and that's why he can't inherit the, the, the kingdom of God, but we left all, didn't we? And, and Jesus is really, really quick to respond to Peter in those last verses preceding this. Okay, look, you're going to be rewarded because of faith, but don't get me wrong. All things are possible with God. Nothing is possible with man. You didn't get this because you earned your salvation. It's because Christ is going to go and die for you. And so this is the foundation upon what we're working on. Uh, where the disciples, they're lagging behind him. It's, it says that they're amazed and they're afraid. They're afraid because they know that Jesus will not be accepted in Jerusalem. Out there in, in all these kind of little towns, he can speak, he can do, he can be Christ, and he'll get a little bit of pushback. And usually there's a, a couple there from the Sadducees or the, the you know a couple other, the priests and the rabbis and the other kind of a religious environment that have come against him. But now they're going to the center city of religious development. They're going to Jerusalem. And they know that he's not going to be accepted. Look at verse 33 again. See, where you're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over. I know some of you don't write in your Bibles and I respect that. But if you are, if you understand that it's a workbook, circle that. It's such an important term. Delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Friends, this is part of the plan. Why this is so important that, that term is so important because this is not something that's just gonna kinda happen and they have to wait to see how it happens. This has been predetermined. This is the will of God. This is the call upon Jesus' life before the foundation of the world. And Jesus acknowledges this, and this is why he's got a bullseye on Jerusalem. He is leading the pack, and he's out there. He's lonely, I believe. And yet he is determined. And he is left foot, right foot, just stepping in order, knowing that he will be delivered over. 
This word when we begin to it shows us this was the plan of the Father. Anybody ever get Amazon packages? Anybody ever get mail? You know, and they come and they come to your door and Bobby Lincoln says, yeah, Bobby Lincoln. I just got a package delivered. Why? Because it was ordered either by myself or somebody else and it was meant to come there. It's not a mistake. It was meant to be delivered. That's the use here. He's going to be delivered over because that's the order. That's what's been established. In fact, do you ever read ahead in books to kind of see a little bit of the back, you know, the, the, the finish? Because you kind of want to know already. Mark 15.1 tells us a little bit of the story that is what's going to happen weeks from now. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered over to Pilate. Led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. Do you think that they really needed to bind him? Said that they bound Jesus. I mean, isn't that kind of silly when you read that? Okay, and they bound him. Kind of like Pilate, when Pilate got to Jesus and he said, you know, and Jesus wouldn't answer the question. And, and, and Jesus said, you know, Pilate goes, do you not know that I have the power of life and death here? <laughs> I can lead to your release or to your condemnation, your death. And Jesus kind of, you don't even know what you're talking about, Pilate. <laughs> They bind him and they deliver him over. They think that they're the masterminds. They think that they're the ones in control. And yet John the Baptist in John chapter 129, the very beginning of the ministry of Christ, when he is the forerunner and he's leading that way as John the Baptist and then Christ comes on. And what does he say in John 129? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, this is all predetermined. I hope that doesn't take out the authenticity of it to you. I hope that doesn't take out the the depth of the meaning for you. I hope that it adds to it because I I don't know about you, but if I know what's coming and they're scourging and spitting and mocking and death on the cross, I'm probably a little bit more reserved. Yet Christ knowing all those things is more determined than ever as he was at the very beginning. Some of the men we've been studying uh, through some passages, and, and one of my favorite passages has come up, and it's always amazed me. Um, Hebrews twelve two, when it's talking about Christ, it said, "Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." For the joy that was set before him, joy because he was going to get hung on a cross. No, joy because there's obedience to the Father. This is his life mission. This is his cause. And the joy comes from obedience, not the cross. It's certainly the joy also comes because he buys our redemption for all those that will place their faith and their trust in the work that he accomplishes there. But the main joy there is obedience to the Father. It is not the event of the cross, I believe, because who could ever have joy in something? When James tells us in James 1, consider it all joy when you fall into various troubles, is he going, man... Your car blow apart, you know, your transmission's laying here and this, and you have to go into your pocket and spend $8,000. Have joy. No, he's not saying have joy over that. He's saying it's in, in the most difficult times of life, and that's such a trivial thing. A transmission falling out. 
in the most difficult things of life, understand that God is working for your maturity and for his glory. That's where the joy comes from. In all of our uh, difficulties of life, I, I don't think that Jesus said, laugh at pain. I think he's saying, look, I will use even the hardest times of your life to draw you near me, to show you my sufficiency, and to mature you so that more and more and more you know that you can trust me. All this is going on, and look what it says in verse 35. This is the attitude of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, and yet we see the completely opposite attitude in James and John, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That seems even strange to have in the Bible, doesn't it? How disconnected can somebody, does somebody have to be to come up at this point? I mean, because we know the rest of the story, and we know that the cross is out here, and we see this triumphant march to the cross that Christ is making. And so we see it for all that it is there, and yet there's their hearts. I just, hey... We kind of want a little favor here. Is that what you get from this, that they want a little favor? There's one thing, if your children come up to you, or if you go up to your boss and say, hey, man, could, could you give me a little slack? I wasn't planning on this. I need to be out for a couple of days. Is, is that going to be okay? Or if your child came up to you and said, you know, I really do want this, and Maybe it's not something super important, but you can see that. And so they kind of make a humble request. This is There's nothing humble about this, and it's open-ended. This is blank check. Do you see what they say? We want you to do whatever we ask. I, I don't know if that's more. I, I, I can't even, I don't even know a word that can describe how far off that is. And, and look at the response. Jesus comes back and he, and he asks them, okay, well, what is it that you want? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Here he's talking about how he's going to die. And he's marching to Jerusalem to die. And all they're thinking about is position and power. Well, Bobby, I don't think it'd get any worse. I mean, Jesus says that he's going to be delivered up, and yet he has joy and obedience to the Father. He's got an attitude so congruent to the Father's heart, and yet here's their heart on display, and it's the exact opposite. It's like polar opposites. It couldn't get worse. Oh, it's, it actually is a little bit worse. Because if you read Matthew's account of this, there's one more person involved. That's their mommy. <laughs> She actually is the one that voices this, but with their okay, if you go back and read in Matthew's account, it will say that the mother of James and John is the one that makes this request. Some scholars think it's because there was a family relationship between Jesus' mother, Mary, and, and her, and that maybe she's coming from that. But the guys are in full, full, full understanding of what's going on. Does anybody have the responsibility within your job to hire people? Okay. So you got to hire people. Now you submit a resume, 
And so they submit all this, and you kind of make your evaluation. What would you think if you were looking at, uh, you know, Fred Smith, and Fred's mom calls you? <laughs> I just want you to know Fred's a really good boy. He's been a good boy ever since I've known him. He's just, even growing up, he's just a good kid. He played well with others on the playground. He was just, I mean, can you imagine mommy calling? And yet this is what happens. And then we go back and look at it. So this is bad, but it's even worse that their mother is there and is a part of this. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? He's talking about this cup of wrath, the same one that he's praying for to pass from him if there's another way in Gethsemane. The wrath of God, the judgment of God upon all the sin in the world. This is the cup. And he asked them, do, do, do you, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized? Now we think of baptism in a very favorable light, but the baptism that we see sometimes there referred to in the Old Testament is a baptism of suffering. And this is what he means here. Can you really, do you think you can really experience the suffering? You know, you hear this baptized with fire. Have you ever heard that term? That's a suffering term. So he asked them. Now look at their response. Verse 39. And they said to him, we're, we're able. Yeah, we can do that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and the left is not mine to grant. Now, what is he saying? It's actually a prophecy. He says, you know, actually, you are going to be able to experience some of this. We find out that James, according to Acts 12, uh, 2, is the first disciple to be martyred. We find out that John, later on, he's the the longest of all the disciples to to live. uh, But he dies on the island of Patmos. Uh, after being boiled alive in oil. And he actually lived through that. You can only imagine the rest of those years as he lived through that. So they are going to face some suffering. They are going to face some of this. Jesus says, look, actually you are going to do that. But you don't understand what you're asking. And you ask to sit at my left hand and the right hand, and that's not mine to give. Uh, this complete obedience to the Father. Theological question. Is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father all on equal level? Yes, they are all fully God. And yet what we see is this interaction in the life of Christ is that he submits to the Father. They're all fully God. They're equal. And yet we see in this relationship of the Trinity, it's kind of mind-blowing to us. We don't completely understand it, but we see this Son of God submitting to his Father's will. That's why he has joy in Hebrews 12 too, in the cross, because he's obedient to the Father. And here he says, look, this is not mine to give. I submit to the in obedience to my Father. Well, the other ten, they, they hear this discussion, and they're furious. But they're not spiritually indignant toward that. They're not going, how could you ever? They're furious because they didn't think of it first. I mean, truly, as we see their hearts, we see that reflected. They're not furious in a holy kind of zeal. They're not like this 
this holiness, like who are you to ask Christ of this when he's going to Jerusalem? None of them are explaining away how out of line this is. They're furious at James and John. Why? Because they don't see it kind of, you know, man, we should have thought of that. We should have thought of that. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus responds, but when he responds, you notice that he responds to all of them. Verse 42 and 43. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But now look at verse 43, guys. But it shall not be so among you. The NIV kind of says it more in uh, the language that we would use maybe today. It says, not so with you. In a world where sometimes we're going, man, let's not be so odd for God. Let's not be so extreme out there. Let's not be so radical. God calls us into a radical life as Christians, guys. Not one to be cleaned up and the edges taken off. And yet, isn't there a part of us that just doesn't want to be odd for God? Don't we kind of, you know, we just kind of want to be like everybody else in a way, not stand out and just kind of get along, but just know that we're going to go to heaven one day. Isn't there that little part of you in there that, that doesn't want to be so extreme that you would actually be cast out because of your extreme love and the radical nature of the gospel? In a world that desires seats of honor, in a world that desires position and power, in a world that thinks about using others for your own advance, Jesus says, not so with you. My bride, not so with you, my bride. Not so with you, James and John. Not so with anybody who would call themselves by my name. Not so with you. What a radical call we have received. Again, look at verse 43 and verse 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you may be slave of all. You might think, well, that kind of sounds familiar. Yeah, Jeff preached this just kind of weeks ago because it's almost a repeat of the story of the last time that he proclaimed that he was going to go to the cross. This is not new. They should have gotten it by now. The clues should have kind of developed Here's the punchline, guys. We don't get a new way of thinking without a new heart. All we get is modification of manners. A modification of morals. And is that what Christianity is? No. Is sometimes, is that what we make Christianity to be? And I believe it breaks the very heart of God. Why, Bobby? Because he doesn't want us to be kinder, gentler, more noble people. No, he wants that, but he wants it to, to be not at our own efforts because you know that's very temporary. It's very surface. And even that could be very self-driven. We are selfish by nature. This is the core of who we are in our lostness. Human nature is selfish. 
And the sinful nature of that is it lives itself out. And so can we modify, can we kind of change that a little bit? Yeah. You can go take, now this is going to really date myself. And there's only going to be maybe 10% of people in here that get this. But you can go take a Dale Carnegie class or a Zig Ziglar class or something else and learn how to be nicer and how to influence people. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel, guys. I didn't need to learn how to be a little bit of a nicer guy. I didn't need to learn some more manners. I needed a Savior because I was lost in my sin. And my selfishness is my main nature. And God radically radically took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and enabled me now to actually think differently and then by his spirit actually act upon that. And here's the thing. If we took any two of us in here, we're just kind of looking one here and one here, we may not be able to tell the difference. Is it always so obvious those who have been radically saved and changed by the very Spirit of God and those who are just trying to be a little bit nicer, kinder, and loving? We, we can. There's a little bit of a fakeness that we can get with that. Folks, we don't have a manners problem. We have a heart problem. And the core of James and John's request was simply a reflection of their heart and their selfishness. And the, the indignance of the other ten is not because, oh, how could they ever ask that of Jesus? Why didn't we think of that first? Dear friends, Jesus has called us into a counterculture. Not to go with the flow downstream, but, but to swim upstream against the flow. Not just in morals, not just in, you know, the activities, but in this heart and mindset. God's call, easily, I I can describe. Not so with you. Is that what he called you into? Is that your, does that describe your life? Not so with you. Does your marriage reflect not so with you? Does your parenting reflect not so with you? Do the way that you go and you approach work and, and, and working for somebody, or if you're the, the boss, the way that you treat your employees, not so with you? Is it such a radical difference, so governed by this radical gospel that you truly are odd for God. Because that's our calling. In a world where people and our human nature is, I deserve this, please let us understand what we really deserve. Because when we really begin to grasp what we really deserve, then that radical nature of the gospel and the work of Christ become so amazing. If I think that I am even a step above anybody else in deserving salvation, then I've lost the true understanding of my lostness and my sinfulness. And I minimize the gospel. Mark 10.45. What a beautiful verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
please don't hear that in a moralistic way. Don't go, okay, man, today I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to be serving more and more. Without the heart change, it is just you working. Without a drastically, without the radical salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone, folks, you're just kind of improving on your manners a little bit. Shall we live lives that are not so with you? Wouldn't that be cool? A lot of, we have a lot of teachers here that in the school system, man, you know, this is how most people are, but it's not so with you. Why? So that you can humbly say, because I've been saved by a God in his gracious grace that he's given me. That the way that they would look at our marriage, the way that they look at our parenting, the way that they would look at every aspect of our life, this is not so with you. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. The very power of God now resides with me in his spirit and he empowers me not just to be a nicer person, kinder, and do a couple things that look a little bit better on the outside, but I have been radically transformed by the power of the living God in my heart. And now, just as it overflows from him, he moves in my life. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be radical? Could your spouse say, it's not so with you? Could your children say, it's not so with you? Could your employer or your employees say, not so with you? I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty or bad. I'm just going to do you realize this radical need that we have for Jesus Christ? Not just in salvation, but in now sanctification, this life that we live. That there's no way that we can live the sanctified life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need for God to move. Why are, why are we so overwhelmed? Man, I don't want to look too religious. I don't want to... Guys, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Humble yourself in the face of mighty God. And understand that we are the most blessed of people if we can call ourselves the children of God by the work that was accomplished by him. So that as this world would look at us, that we'd be so odd for God that they'd go, man, everybody else is doing, but not so with them and that family, not so with them. Radical. But a reflection of the radical nature of the true gospel of Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. Father, I pray that I've communicated your word in a way that it can be understanding, but I am dependent upon your Holy Spirit, Father, to personalize that to each one of us. Father, I, I can imagine that some of this word is a word of correction, other a word of direction for them as they just trying to, to make it today and tomorrow. But Father, will you call us to be a radically different people? And that we would not let that radical nature, just because we've learned to be a kind of a kinder, sweeter, and nicer kind of group of people, but that we have been radically changed from the inside out, a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, now beating to bring glory to the one who redeemed us. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. What amazing grace. That as wrong as James and John were on this day, as, as, Father, 180 degrees different from where they needed to be, that you saved them, you died for them, you rose for them, you allowed them to be instrumental in the formation of the body of Christ in the New Testament church, and you allowed them to die for you. What a God you are. So, Father, we speak this morning, not as the 99, but the one. And we thank you that you come after the one. We love you, Father. And we thank you for Christ. Help us this week to be so radically different and that the world would say of us, not so with you. For we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.